As I said at the beginning, you may have noticed things look a little different in here. Or if you're visiting this morning, you may be wondering why the architect did not design windows or call the electrician. We embrace something different during the Advent season. The first thing you might notice is it's dark in here. And we intentionally choose to make this space dark for two reasons. And the first is because darkness represents hopelessness. The hopelessness of a world without Jesus. It's the darkness of realizing that left to our own devices, left to ourselves, there is no way to God. There's nothing we could do to earn our redemption. We're lost, we're alone, and we're in darkness without Jesus. But darkness also represents waiting, a season of longing, a season of expectancy, a season of looking for more, a season of anticipating God's coming in his fullness to redeem his people. It's always darkest just before the dawn. And it was into this darkness that Jesus came. This is the second thing you may notice of the candles. They break through the darkness with light. The candle lights at the front and through the aisles of the sanctuary remind us that when Jesus came, it was not with great fanfare or with loud proclamation. It was with humility. A tiny light that shines in the darkness. But it's a light that spreads and is growing And it gives light to all who welcome him, Jesus. We welcome the Lord Jesus here as we gather to worship him. And the third thing you're going to notice that's different about this season as we gather for Advent is stories. Throughout the year, we practice expository preaching, the practice of exposing scripture, making visible and plain what God has clearly said in his word to his people. But during Advent, we shift from preaching to actual storytelling. Truth explained has power. It comes right in through the front door. It demands our attention to wrestle with it and allow it to win us over. But stories can also present truth. They can come in through the back door. They can sneak in. And allow us to identify maybe with characters. Identify with the the plight or challenges of those that we hear about. The stories that are going to be shared throughout Advent are fiction. That is for sure. They're imaginative embellishments. They're extrapolations upon the biblical text. So we do not present the stories as truth themselves. But instead we allow them to allow the truth of God to soak into us, into our minds, and settle in in a unique and different way, and to enjoy being drawn into the great stories of Jesus. So darkness, candles, story, it's going to be a little bit different for the next four weeks. It's not your typical Sunday morning at church, is it? But hopefully this place is going to live up to its name, a sanctuary, a safe place from the busyness and the chaos of this season. A chaos that, that at times even seems to 
infringe upon or threaten to obscure the reason that we gather here to worship. That God came down in the person of Jesus Christ and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only full of grace and truth. So this is Advent. Matthew 1, 22 through 23 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You might notice a new decoration this year in the sanctuary. The light over here to our side. And this is to represent the heart of what took place at Christmas. This is the inconceivable historical fact and reality that God's people have been celebrating for 2,000 years. It should shock us to our very core that God came down. The living God, sovereign over all the universe, came down, took on human form. He entered into the world that he created. We sing about it. We celebrate it. We delight in fancy words like incarnation or enfleshment. But there's more to the incarnation. There's more to God coming down if we take a little bit deeper look. And that's what we're going to do this Advent season. It's enough to celebrate that God came down, but we're going to look a little deeper and see why God came down. What were his purposes for taking on flesh? What was he trying to accomplish by taking on human form? What can we learn from the incarnation? And each week we're going to celebrate a different reason, a different answer to that question. And this week we're going to start off simply by recognizing that Jesus came. God came down to show us that we still matter to God. If we didn't matter to him anymore, he would have left us alone. If we had gone astray and he was no longer interested in a relationship with us, he would have just let us be or destroyed us. That is what we deserved. But instead, God reveals that he still loves us. He still loves you. He still cherishes you. He still wants to know you. He invites you to be in relationship with him, enjoying him. If we didn't matter to God, we'd be dead. But God came down precisely because we still matter to him. So no matter how badly we've messed up, no matter how much our lives have gone astray, no matter how far we think we've gone, the fact that God came down means that he sees you, he cherishes you, he knows you, he loves you. And that you and I, we still matter to God. It's for us, it's for all of us that he came. You still matter to God. May you hear his voice this morning calling to you, telling you that you are loved, that you are precious to him, that he sees you. May the truth of Jesus' birth be a piercing call for you to respond to God, maybe even recommit your life to him. God came down because you still matter to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. What a gift you are. The greatest gift. 
Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, allow that to soak into our minds this morning. Allow that truth to pierce our hearts that we might know that we still matter to you this morning. That you have not forgotten any one of us. That you love us, that you're calling out to us. May our personal, individual hearts know that this morning. And may we as a church remember that reality as we look to care for and love the needs of our city. God, everything we do this morning is to orient, to allow you to reorient our lives around you. May our gaze be transfixed upon you, the living God, the mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, our savior. We love you, Jesus. We worship you this morning. Amen. This year, don't come from the birth narratives of Jesus, but from the accounts of his life and the very people that he encountered. For while it's important to remember the humble way in which Jesus came, in order to understand why God came down, we need to remember also the things that he did. More than just a baby lying in a manger. God came down because we still matter to him. Our story this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I'm going to read it for you as a prologue to our story. To get you familiar with the account, to introduce the characters in the story, and to remind us that as much fun as stories are here during Advent, it is the scriptures that are the very word of God. Not our stories. The Bible is faithful and true and stands as categorically different and other from our stories and our imagination. With that being said, we invite you to enter into the biblical account this morning in a fresh way. We invite you to sit back, listen, let your imagination play out as we enter into the world of Jesus to discover that God came down because we still matter to him. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. But Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. 
Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say them among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. As you just heard read, Luke 1.37 says that a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She sat with her back against the stone wall at the far end of the courtyard, leaning along that back wall with the others. I mean, there were others on either side of her, and every one of them had their own story. They were dirty, they were poor, they were sinners, just like her. Hers was just one story among many, but they all had this one thing in common. They would never have a seat at the table that had been laid out in the courtyard in front of them. Evening was falling and the household servants of Simon the Pharisee were busy lighting the oil lamps and finishing the preparations at the table called a triclinium. It was a table set out much like an open square, the tables forming three sides with the fourth side missing. The guests would recline facing inwards towards one another with their legs and their feet extended out behind them away from the table and the servants were busy anticipating their guest who would arrive any minute now. And it made her furious that her presence, unwelcome at the table, was welcome along the back wall in the courtyard of this Pharisee. I mean, she knew that the doors were never closed for these kinds of banquets. Instead, the poor and the sinners were allowed in the courtyard to sit around the outside of the room. And when the banquet was finished, often it was the remaining food that would be distributed to them. And, and, and that seems generous, at least in theory, but... But it made her furious because what had begun as a practice of kindness had degenerated into a status symbol for these religious leaders. The more of her kind that were gathered around the edges of a banquet, the more generous and magnanimous the host would appear to be. Look at how he feeds the poor and the outcasts, people would say, and they would admire his righteousness. But instead of it being actual generosity... Many of these Pharisees just used the poor in their posturing, trying to show just how righteous and just how godly they were. And in her opinion, this very posturing, this welcoming the poor only to make themselves look better, it invalidated any of the good that might be accomplished. God had to be able to see the corrupt hearts behind such gestures. She hated the whole situation. Well, except for the one thing, the poor did get to eat that night. They were hungry, and they would get food. But that this was the only way to find food for them made her even more furious. She wasn't even considered to be a person to these religious types. She was an untouchable. She was as good as invisible to them. Even Simon's servants directed scorn her way whenever they happened to look towards her. These religious leaders couldn't see her. They didn't know her story. They couldn't see the ways that she had been trapped in this life of hers. They they couldn't know the impossible decisions she had been forced to make just to survive. All they saw was a sinner. 
All they saw was someone on whom God had turned his back because they presumed she had turned her back on God. And that's all they saw. Well, all except for him. Except for Jesus. He was different. She had heard him addressing the crowds in the towns throughout Galilee, and she actually followed him from place to place, straining to hear more. And when he spoke... He did so with an authority and, and yet with a gentleness unlike any of the Pharisees she had ever heard. And she had been nearby at the banquet Levi had thrown. Yes, Jesus, Jesus even ate with tax collectors. And she had heard the argument with the Pharisees even then when Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And with those words... He had changed her life. You see, he hadn't condemned her. He hadn't rejected her. He hadn't written her off as a sinner beyond saving. Instead, he spoke the truth that she had longed to hear, but had long lost hope of ever hearing. This prophet had come to say that the one true God had not given up on her. That God saw her in her need. He saw her in her brokenness. He saw her trapped in the cycle of sin and shame. He saw her powerlessness to rescue herself. He saw, well, he saw her. You still matter to God, for I came to seek and save the lost, Jesus had declared. And that was the best news she'd ever heard. God still loved her, even her even a sinner like her. She wasn't hopeless. She wasn't irreparably damaged. God still saw her and called her back to himself. It, and if that's what God is like, then her life belonged to him, no matter what the religious leaders told her. This is what Jesus had come to say. And hearing those words, she had turned away from her life of sin and decided to follow this teacher, this rabbi, this prophet, this this Jesus who had come from God. Jesus, she thought. Even his name means the Lord saves. Well, he'd saved her. And she had to see him again. And she had to let him know. She had to say thank you. So that's when it had come to her. The way to say thank you. She'd heard that Jesus was coming to dine at Simon the Pharisee's house. And she knew she could gain entrance before the feast and take her place along the back wall of the courtyard with the other pity cases. But she also knew it was her best chance to see Jesus for herself, to express her gratitude to him, and in so doing, to express her gratitude to God for seeing her, for loving even her, and for not giving up on her. As she knew the customs of these banquets by now. The guest would arrive, and he'd be greeted with a kiss by the host, and water would be offered to wash his feet from the dust of the journey, and oil would be provided to anoint his head to refresh him before the meal. And that's when she'd do it, she thought. She'd saved everything she had to purchase a small amount of perfume in an alabaster jar. And after Jesus had been welcomed by the host, but before he was seated, there would be a moment there where she could, where she could approach him quickly before anyone could stop her and to offer him the perfume as a gift, as a token of her gratitude for bringing her back to God. And so there she sat, waiting along the back wall, Enduring the scornful looks of Simon's household, all because Jesus was coming. 
all because she still mattered to God. Luke 136 reminds us that when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. It was an unspoken thing, but Simon knew Jesus was on his way. I mean, the murmurs in the courtyard, the hurried glances among the servants, the excited whispers moving around the room. He was near. He'd be here any minute. And then everything would fall into place. The banquet was a great idea, he had to admit. What better way to show this young upstart teacher who had the real authority here? What better way to demonstrate who had God's favor, who knew the law better, who was more righteous? What better way than to throw a banquet? What better opportunity to put Jesus in his place? He'd given his household servants strict instructions. Do not greet him with honor. He himself had no plans to greet this Jesus with the respect offered by a kiss. None of his people would be permitted to do so either. Do not offer water for his feet. That was reserved for occasions when we wanted to honor a guest. But we were here to show this Jesus that he was nothing special and that his teachings needed some amending. And don't anoint his head with oil, he had instructed. Not for his head or for his beard, just... just Welcome him and show him to the place at the table without any fanfare. He glanced around at the, the riffraff sitting around the edges of the courtyard. There were, there were enough. Not so many as to seem, you know, indecent, but enough to show this Jesus what holiness really looks like. Simon's generosity would be on full display, feeding them scraps after the meal had concluded. He, he actually hated having them here. He felt like they somehow made him unclean just by their presence. They were good for nothing. Uh, not nothing. They helped him look good. From the moment Jesus walks through these doors, he thought, he'll see what a teacher of the law looks like. He'll see what holiness looks like. And I'll help bring him into line. So he began to rehearse his questions for Jesus. He thought up some good ones that would put Jesus in some kind of legal or moral bind. Uh, it was his plan to talk circles around this Jesus to lay delicate verbal traps into which Jesus would unwittingly walk and then to close the trap and show all those who'd gathered publicly who it was they should follow. Everyone was saying this Jesus was some kind of prophet, but it was his job tonight to reveal to everyone there that he was no prophet. It was his job tonight to redirect the people away from Jesus and back to the more proper religious leaders. One of his attendants interrupted his rehearsing. Pardon me, Rabbi, the, the teacher, he's here. Luke 138 reads, As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And now how am I going to thank him, she thought. How am I going to get to Jesus? She was on the verge of panic. Neither Simon nor any of his household had welcomed Jesus or offered the hospitality and refreshment due to any guest, much less than an honored one. He, he simply went to the table and reclined there. He's already at the table. 
How, how could she give him the perfume now? Her plan had been to approach Jesus while he was having his feet washed or, or while he was being offered oil, but none of that happened. And he's up, It just happened so quickly and she'd missed her chance. But then it sunk in. It sunk in that, that more than just missing out on her chance, Jesus hadn't been treated with the dignity or honor he deserved. And, and she was outraged. She was, she was furious, even more than she was before. What brazen disrespect. No kiss of greeting. No water for his feet. No oil for his head. What was Simon doing? And, well, I guess it was obvious what he was doing. He was putting Jesus in his place. It was a power move. And it made her sick to her stomach that someone would publicly diminish Jesus like this. This is her Jesus who came from God. This is... Jesus who told, told the world that God hadn't given up on sinners, that they still mattered to God. This is Jesus who loved the unlovable, who ate with sinners and tax collectors, who had shown her the Father's love and literally saved her life from the path she had been going down. That someone would dishonor him so obviously, so blatantly. How could Simon not see what she could see, what everyone else could see about Jesus? How could Simon be so obtuse? How could he treat Jesus this way? She didn't remember getting up from her place along the wall. She didn't remember coming over and standing behind where Jesus was reclining at the table. She didn't remember falling to her knees. But she found herself there, bowed forward, weeping at Jesus' feet. She wept in gratitude for the message Jesus had brought from God, she wept out of love for this one who had seen her and loved her and restored her life with God. And she wept in outrage at Simon, whose posturing and public displays of righteousness made her sick. She wept over how Jesus was being publicly dishonored. And she wept because there was just so much frustration and emotion closed up inside her and it was just all coming out. Jesus started he, he turned suddenly to look at her, twisting his upper body to see who would come up from behind him because she realized suddenly with horror her great tears had landed on his feet. He turned to her, but he did not recoil. He did not pull his feet back. And the look, the look in his eyes was so gentle, so welcoming, so loving. She, she wept even more. Caught up in the moment, she lost all sense of herself. She wasn't even aware that the entire courtyard had become dead silent. Everyone's eyes were on her, and she didn't even know. All she knew was that she was so grateful for Jesus, and she needed him to know how much he had done for her. All she could see through her tear-blurred vision was Jesus' feet before her, with her tears making little streaks of dark through the dust on his skin. She looked around for a towel but found nothing, so, so she loosed her hair and began to wipe his feet with her hair. And her face was so close to his feet, she couldn't help. She, she began to kiss his feet, and a gasp went through the crowd, but she didn't hear it. She couldn't hear it. She wouldn't have cared if she could. She kissed his feet with such purity and gentleness, with such honor and gratitude. And then she understood. Then she knew what it was she had to do. She reached into her robe and pulled out the alabaster jar. It was supposed to just be a gift, 
But now she would do that which Simon had failed to do. She would anoint Jesus with it. It had this long, slender neck. She broke off the neck, allowing the fragrance of the perfume to fill the air. This is the one who had seen her, she thought. This was the one who had come from God to find her, to forgive her, to tell her that God hadn't forgotten her, to tell her that she still mattered to God. And so she poured the fragrance over Jesus' feet working it into the skin, the perfume now mingling with her tears. And then she fell face down on the ground, not even daring to look up, honoring Jesus and giving thanks to God. Luke one thirty nine says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. The room was frozen. The only sound was the woman still weeping quietly at Jesus' feet. Simon was appalled. He was embarrassed, but but actually, he thought with a start, it, this was all the proof he needed. This, this was actually perfect. It was, it was proof that Jesus wasn't a prophet. A true prophet wouldn't let a sinful wo- woman touch him, much less one who had loosed her hair in public and even, even kissed his feet. No true prophet would allow any woman to dishonor him like that, much less a woman like this one, which also means he can't be a true prophet. A true prophet would know what kind of woman she is. It's obvious he doesn't know. This Jesus is no prophet. Either way, Simon thought, I win. There was really only one one play that would allow Jesus to save face here. He had to recoil from the woman. He had to pull away in shock and outrage. He had to chastise her for presuming to touch him, much less to kiss him in public. He smiled to himself when he saw what was happening because Jesus was not pulling away. He didn't even pull his feet up away from her. He just sat there, allowing her to make a spectacle of herself. The sound of Jesus' voice startled him out of his self-congratulation. Simon. And Jesus was staring straight at him. And there was something in Jesus' eyes. Simon expected Jesus maybe to be embarrassed or... Maybe he'd expected Jesus to offer some kind of awkward apology for the scene he'd allowed to take place in the Pharisee's home, but but Jesus wasn't looking at the woman and he wasn't looking at any of the other guests. He was looking exclusively at Simon. And now for some reason, he was looking with, with, with something in his eyes that made Simon decidedly uncomfortable. Simon, do you see this woman? Simon scoffed inwardly. Of course he saw her. The whole room could see her. That was kind of the point. He remained silent. Jesus continued, Do you really see her, Simon? Do you see her story? Do you see her life? Do you truly see her as the Father sees her? Simon didn't respond. The look in Jesus' eyes intensified. Simon, I have something to tell you. Luke 1, starting at verse 40, says that Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. So tell me, teacher, he said. 
Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So how do you make an exit after a display like that? She looked over at Simon the Pharisee, who was dumbstruck and mortified. Jesus had turned the tables on him, revealing Simon's pettiness and his judgmental spirit while extending nothing but grace and forgiveness to her. Jesus had taken her by the hand, lifted her to her feet, and gave her a graceful out. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She awkwardly crossed the courtyard and headed out into the evening and out into a new life with her God. So what now? How does one recover from making a scene like that? She was a little embarrassed as she thought about it, walking out into the night. And yet, forgiveness was what he had said. I've been forgiven. I have a new beginning. I still matter to God, and now I have a life, a new life with him to explore. Yet, what a scene she had made. It had never been her intention to make a scene. Or at least not that big a scene, but at the same time, she was growing convinced that it was entirely appropriate. If it had to happen all over again, she was sure she wouldn't change a thing. What a privilege to have been so near Jesus. What a privilege to have kissed her Savior, to have washed his feet, to have anointed him with perfume. And then for Jesus to draw the comparison, humbling Simon in front of all his guests, so good. But then she considered this. You know, Simon didn't have it all together either. And if Jesus came to show God's love to her, perhaps this very night Jesus was trying to reorient Simon's whole world to understand God's love better too. But Jesus came to show God's love for Simon too. Even Simon Yeah, she couldn't have planned it any better if she tried. If she had to do it all over again, she wouldn't change a thing. Still, a large part of her hoped against hope that the spectacle she'd caused would fade from people's minds quickly. She gave it a week, two weeks at the most, before people would forget all about her. Hopefully no one would remember what had happened this night. It's not like anyone's writing this stuff down. And what if somebody wrote it down? Oh dear. Well, she conceded if they did, she hoped they would somehow capture the gravitas, the the fullness of what Jesus had done there in the Pharisee's home. 
Jesus had shown them all that night that God has not withdrawn from our world or from our lives, that He sees us right where we are, that He meets us with exactly what we need. And above all, Jesus clearly demonstrated there in that room that God came down to show us that whether a sinner like me or a sinner like Simon, that we still matter to God. Just, just as long as they don't forget my name, she considered as she walked into her new forgiven life with God. All because of Jesus.